Hi everyone and welcome to the 8th episode of the podcast. This episode is going to cover the 3rd chapter of Pauline Mayer's American Scripture and the Declaration of Independence itself. At the beginning of the chapter, Mayer states that comparing all the information from the actual drafting of the Declaration is that of a puzzle, that so many pieces, some fit together, some are completely contradictory, and more just appear as time goes on. So the actual connection and understanding how it was drafted has taken a long time and it's not even precise yet because there's still so much information coming out and also the recollections and evidence of the actual drafting were only made public way after the event when the founders were already way older and may have forgotten the event. Despite all of that, we do know obviously that the declaration was written. We have it, we can see what ended up being written and what they ended up choosing on. We also know that Jefferson did end up writing most of the draft. He did have a committee of five people to help him edit, but he did do a majority of the work. The Declaration is a beautifully written document. It's also probably one of the most influential in all of American history. By the end of the introduction, Mayer wants it to be known that, yes, Jefferson did do a lot of work on the Declaration of Independence with drafting and editing. However, the Declaration itself cannot be known as a document made by one person. It is made by a group, by a consensus, not the work of an individual. John Adams wrote an autobiography in 1805, way after the event. In it, he states that the committee was way more involved in the beginning, and that they tried to also put him in charge of drafting as well, but he said that he deferred it over to Jefferson. And the reasoning why is actually pretty interesting. There's four reasons that he gives for uh, refusing to join Jefferson on writing it, and why he deferred it to Jefferson. The first, that he was a Virginian and I a Massachusetts, from Massachusetts, I don't know how to pronounce that. Two, that he was a southern man and I a northern one. Three, that I have been so obnoxious for my early and consistent veil in the promoting of the measure that any drought of mine would undergo a more severe scrutiny and criticism in Congress than one of his composition. Fourthly and lastly, that it would be reason enough if there were no other I had a great opinion of the elegance of his pen, and none at all of my own. So with that last one, it's very clear that he thinks uh, Jefferson is a much better writer, that Jefferson is more well-spoken on paper, and that was the complete opposite of Adams. Adams was a very well-speaker. He knew how to uh, speak his mind, but he did not know how to write it on paper. The first reason is interesting as well, that Jefferson was from Virginia and Adams was from Massachusetts. The reason why that, that was a big idea in Adams' mind was because Massachusetts was home of the Puritans, and they were always very outspoken against the monarchy. So he believed that if another man from Massachusetts was going to write a draft on uh, a Declaration of Independence from the monarchy, it wouldn't sound that surprising from someone from Massachusetts. They would figure that he's just a Puritan and following on the cause that so many others have done. But someone from Virginia was a little bit more secular, not necessarily that he didn't believe in religion, but that he wasn't as extreme as the Puritans. If someone who wasn't as extreme within the Puritans against the monarchy is now coming out and saying that the monarchy was giving them a raw deal, it would give more reason to listen to him. Adams and Jefferson's recollection of how they were approached to draft the Declaration do differ a bit, 
because Adams stated that they were both confronted. Jefferson then later stated that only he was confronted. And then in a journal by Adams that was found in 1779, it did state that Jefferson was the only one actually approached. And then the committee was thought of after the fact. This is one of those examples that Mayer was talking about earlier where it really is a puzzle because there are different information coming from different sides about how the process happened. In 1982, the editors of the papers of Benjamin Franklin also found a little bit of an inconsistency in Jefferson's story because they found that instead of what Jefferson said to where he gave the declaration to the committee after sending it through Adams and Franklin, that the committee uh, edited the declaration at the same time as Adam and Jefferson. Excuse me, uh, Franklin. I think the differences and inconsistencies in the story is well understandable. I mean, you have to remember, Jefferson had an extremely short amount of time to write the declaration, and then even less to edit it. Now, luckily, Mayer points out that he was fortunate because he had other works to base his off of. He had the draft preamble of the Virginia Constitution that he had just finished, and the Virginia Declaration of Rights. Mayer also states that in the 18th century, well-educated people didn't really like novelty. They wanted writings based off of other pieces. I would like to take a moment and go into one of those pieces, specifically the Virginia Declaration of Rights. I won't go into every section of the Declaration of Rights, but there are a couple that do stand out, especially in the correlation with the Declaration of Independence. The first section in the Virginia Declaration of Rights states, Section 1, that all men by nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights of which, when they enter into a state of society, they cannot by any compact deprive or divest their posterity, namely, their enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Now, obviously, there are direct comparisons to the preamble of the Declaration of Independence. You know, we have unalienable rights, uh, of those are life, liberty, and the original Locke idea of life, liberty, and property is even put in here with, you know, the means of acquiring and possessing property. The use of the word inherent also has some significance. We see in the original drafting and the original words of Jefferson within the Declaration of Independence that instead of certain unalienable, he writes inherent. Now, that was obviously changed because certain just was more of a common word. It was easier to get across. But inherent meant that it was something within you that you just couldn't have it without being human. Another is Section 7, that all powers of suspending laws or the execution of laws by any authority without consent of the representatives of the people is injurious to the rights and ought not to be exercised. So we see again that connection to no representation means that it's unlawful and unjust, that it's in direct violation of their unalienable rights. The last one I'd like to briefly touch on is section 16, that religion or the duty which we owe to our creator, creator is capitalized, and the manner of discharging it can be directed only by reason and conviction not by force or violence, and therefore all men are equally entitled to the free exercise of religion according to the dictates of con conscience, and that it is the mutual duty of all to practice Christian forbearance, love, 
and charity towards one another. So the last part with the Christian forbearance, love, charity, I don't think that that's saying that you strictly need to be a Christian, but you just need to treat each other with care and, you know, respect. But the beginning is what's very important, to which we owe our creator, and creator is capitalized. That is a direct correlation to the Declaration of Independence. Uh, we are endowed by our creator, which, you know, is also capitalized. So they're writing that it's not necessarily secular, but that we all owe something to a deity that has created us, that we are made in the likeness of, not necessarily the Christian God, but of something that gave us life. Jefferson put in an insane amount of effort with this document. That That's unarguable. It's completely fair to call this Jefferson's draft. Despite all of that, I think it's more than fair to also understand that this was a team effort. Jefferson didn't just write the first one and be done. He wrote multiple, he gave it to multiple people to edit it, and we have evidence of all of this. So while it is technically Jefferson's draft, it's also just as much a group effort. It's a work of the American people. And that was just the first part of the declaration. That was just the preamble. Now it's time to get into the grievances. The main meat of the declaration is the grievances listed against the king. Jefferson wrote these to kind of show what the king was doing to become tyrannical and to take the personal liberties of the colonists. But the British citizens and also the loyalists, they just, they had a field day of just trying to take every little uh, instance that Jefferson wrote about and debunk it. In fact, even historians and some specialists on the Declaration are a little bit confused about which grievances Jefferson lists. The first eight grievances are known as the by clauses because each one starts with the word by. This doesn't necessarily put the king at complete blame, but it shows that the king was perfectly fine and knew what was happening when these types of laws were being passed. Some of these include number two, by denying to his governors permission to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation for his assent, and when so suspended, neglecting to attend to them for many years. Which basically, to me, means that he's not allowing the governors to do their job and represent the colony that they come from. Number seven, by keeping among us in times of peace standing armies and ships of war, obviously meaning that standing armies still exist when there's no war going on. And number eight, by affecting to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power, basically showing that he has a strong military and the citizens can't do anything about it. All those clauses were just the first draft. The next one he was writing specifically for the committee, and he wanted to distinguish it from the English Declaration of Rights. To do so, he switched all the by clauses into he has, directly putting impact on the king and blaming the king for what had happened. He also added four more measures by which he thought that the king uh, showed tyrannical power. One of which being the ninth, uh, he has made our judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries, meaning that most likely a judge will be sympathetic to the king and parliament rather than a fellow colonist folk. Jefferson caught a bit of flack for the grievances that he laid out. One of those was that he was too general, that there weren't any particulars to support it and no evidence. And it's been speculated that the reason for that is that Jefferson had influence from the English Declaration of Rights. The purpose of declarations in English law were to be plain and simple. You didn't want confusing uh, language to make people unaware of what their rights were. 
the other issue that was seen with the grievances laid out is that they covered um, controversial examples of the king using his executive powers. Most of the time that he used it, it was within individual colonies and even provincial. For example, the coercive acts were meant to punish Massachusetts, and specifically Boston, for what they were doing. Someone in Georgia may not care about those acts or what the king was doing because it didn't affect them. In fact, it didn't really affect any other state other than Massachusetts. Some felt that these measures Jefferson laid out were just too similar to the way that the English conducted things. Also, that they were just too specific for each colony. You have to remember, a lot of the influence came from uh, Jefferson's draft of the Virginia Constitution. So a lot of the problems that he mentioned were Virginia's problems, not necessarily the North colony's problems, not necessarily the Deep South's problems, but Virginia's. Historians agree that some of the measures that he lays out can only really be understood by other Virginians at the time, maybe even only Jefferson. One example is the very first one. He has refused to assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. Also, it can be easily told that the fourth grievance, he has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures, is directly correlated with Adams. In 1768, the royal governor of Massachusetts moved the House of Representatives to Cambridge because it seemed that due to the violence, they wouldn't be able to meet in Boston. So that issue didn't really hold any leverage other than in Boston. These issues do show an interesting correlation, though. None of the colonies really thought of themselves as a unified being, or even their own country that was different from Britain. They saw themselves as sovereign states, their own areas that they inhabited that was their own. It wasn't necessarily that they were a United States, but they were a collection of like-minded individuals, but still wanted their anonymity and to live their lives in their own colonies. I guess at that point it would be states, but there was still the difference uh, between each state. I personally don't think that would be a bad thing either to include grievances from each colony. It would get to be a lot, and it would get to be annoying to see who gets precedence over the other, does the order matter, um, how many do we put from each colony, but it would show that there are many issues within the colonies state by state, excuse me, colony by colony, that they have with the king. I think that would have been powerful, but at the same time, it's a lot harder to do. Thomas Hutchinson, though, would give the colonists a way to kind of come together and understand that all their grievances was felt as a group, not just individually, but as a group. Yes, some of the specific examples would be individual, but for the most part, they all knew what each other was feeling. Hutchinson came and trying to debunk what uh, Jefferson was doing, asked a few questions about whether or not the colonists had ever petitioned the king to, for example, to allow his governors to pass laws without a suspending clause or without the people's relinquishing the rights of representation, to allow assemblies which have been dissolved by his order to meet again, to pass laws to encourage the migration of foreigners, um, to vacate or disannual new elected offices. So he was asking all these questions to see if they actually had an answer because Jefferson's um, accusations in his grievances were so specific. 
Hutchinson pointing all these things out show the colonists that, yeah, we did complain about these things, and they were able to come together and show that they genuinely had complaints that each one agreed with, that each one felt, that each one understood the anger behind. What came to be known as the 13th accusation cannot be described as trivial or insignificant to anyone. This was something that everyone felt, and I think it's most important to read it out in its entirety to understand that it is not insignificant or specific to one place that the other accusations were, but that this one encompassed everyone. It reads, He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of precedent and legislation. 1. For quartering large bodies of armed troops among us. 2. For cutting off our trade with all parts of the world. 3. For imposing taxes on us without our consent. 4. For depriving us of the benefits of trial by jury. 5. For transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses. 6. For suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. I don't think anyone who lived in the colonies at these times could not relate to any of these accusations, and I think these are some of the most damning accusations against the king. Well, yes, the first 12 were a little bit specific for certain people living in certain areas of the colonies. These encompassed everyone. Trade restrictions hurt everyone, not only north, not only south, but everyone. The quartering of troops was not new to anyone. Everyone had experienced it. These became known as the Four Clauses, which they specifically state the issues that the king has raised against them, and he even added three more after the original six. These three included 7. For abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instruments for introducing us or excuse me, introducing the same absolute rule into these states. 8. For taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments. 9. For suspending our own legislatures, and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. I think that last one's really important because it shows that they felt the parliament and British government in general didn't care about the colonists or what they thought. They didn't even see them as, technically, first-class citizens or anything like that. It was that the colony colonists excuse me, were so depraved and so childish that they could not run themselves, they could not govern themselves. They need to be watched like children. Unlike the broad nature of the he-has uh, clauses, the four clauses are extremely specific and pointing to direct actions taken against each colony in modern time. You can see references to the Stamp Act, uh, where taxes were being pushed without representation. We can see callbacks to the Coercive Acts, as well as the Townsend Acts, and possibly the Tea Act. While all of these are referencing specific acts, the reasoning behind the order is very specific and very important. He listed them in the order of severity of violations on American rights. So he starts with the quartering of soldiers into taxes, then finally with the ninth one into the complete uh, suspension of the colonial legislators. 
The final part of the charges were current events that were happening at the time, what the British government was doing to the colonists when this was being written. I won't read all of them, but some are, for example, 10, by plundering our seas, ravaging our coasts, burning our towns, and destroying the lives of our people, and 13, by endeavoring to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions of existence. Now, the first draft only had uh, the 16 at the end. I did not read all of them, but there were 16. He didn't feel, he being Jefferson, that is, that this was a good conclusion to the Declaration. He thought that it would add more questions than it would answers. So he wrote three more. 17, 18, 19, and 20. I'm not going to read all of them because they are quite long, but the 20th is a very long paragraph that explains all of the problems and the inherent issues with the monarchy and the British king himself. Jefferson's purpose when writing the Declaration of Independence was to show that there was no alternative, that the need for independence was so ingrained, so necessary, that nothing else would suffice. Jefferson wanted to make George III look like a tyrant, and I'd say he did a really good job. So many accusations and so many charges were put against the king and parliament that it's really undeniable that there was an issue at hand. The declaration is not perfect. There are issues with it. The parts with the he has clauses with them being so specific that even people in the time wouldn't understand some of the grievances being made is an issue. It does show the importance of statehood, but not that there was a unifying issue there. I think the four clauses did do a good job of fixing that and making it more universal, but it's not perfect by any means. Some of the accusations weren't exactly true. For some royal governors, they were pushed out of office by the colonists, not the king. Not everything's going to be completely accurate, however, there are enough instances that it does make sense that it would upset the colonists. Before I go, there's one more thing that I would like to address, and I addressed it slightly earlier, but I really want to dive a little bit deeper and offer one last question and insight. Everyone knows this part of the preamble. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It can be argued that every aspect of our government and our rights comes from this part of the Declaration, that we are given the unalienable rights by our Creator of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you look at the amendments, they all cover life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Everything you can argue boils down to these three things. Like I stated earlier, Creator is capitalized in this. It doesn't say specifically which Creator, but that your Creator. So no matter what religion you believe in or where you come from, that's where you get your rights from, from what's created you. We are getting more and more secular and also atheistic as a nation. So if we get to that point where everyone is atheistic, where do our rights come from? Do we have these unalienable rights? I'm curious how the Founding Fathers thought of this, or if that church and religion was such an ingrained idea, especially for um, Massachusetts residents like Jane Franklin to where her faith was just so ingrained that this wasn't really a question, that it was unquestioned that people would have this faith all their lives. Now, I'm not trying to get religious and I'm not trying to th shove theology down people's throats, but it's an interesting question. 
if we don't believe that we have a creator and that there is nothing after this life, where do our rights come from? And do we even have the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? That's just a question I've had for a long time, and I think it's an interesting idea to think about. I wanted to thank everyone for listening to my especially long episode on the Declaration of Independence and the drafting and process that Jefferson went through. Um, Thank you again, and good luck on the midterms next week.